Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, for those I haven't met, uh, my name is Ada, and I'm going to read the Bible for us this morning. Uh, we have two Bible readings today, and if you'd like to follow along in one of the church Bibles, um, you feel free to um, go to the back table and grab one. Um, our first Bible reading is uh, from Genesis chapter 2, uh, verses 4 to 14, and can be found on page 2 of the Bibles, or you're welcome to follow on your own devices or on the screen behind me. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden, were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire of Hivala, where there is gold. The gold of that, of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs along the east of Asher. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Our second Bible reading is from Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verses 7 to 19, and can be found on page 948 in the Church Bibles. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know 
this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Thanks, Ada. Good morning again, everyone. Um, thanks so much for having me here. It's uh, great to be with you this morning and to see uh, so many new faces from when I was here last time around. It was probably over a year ago, I think, that I was out here. It's great to see you all. How about we pray as we begin? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this new day, for the opportunity to open your word. And Father, we pray that you would clear our minds and calm our hearts so that we might hear your message clearly to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to propose something um, to you all this morning. And the proposal is that uh, an action requires a reaction. Right, that's the proposal. An action requires a reaction. And here's what I mean. Um, this morning, I could have arrived here at 6am. I could have let myself in and I could have done all the setup here this morning. Um, I didn't do that, by the way, but I could have done that. That would have been a nice action, right? If I'd got here and, and done all the setup. And I imagine if that's what I'd done, I would have got a reaction, at least from the setup team, right? I'm sure at least they would have said thank you for doing that. Might have got more invitations maybe to come back and preach so long as I did set up before I got here. Um, what about a, a much bigger example of an action? What about giving away a brand new car? How about that? Oprah Winfrey uh, on the next slide. She gave away uh, 276 cars celebrating her 19th uh, season of her talk show. Now that's a massive action, isn't it? And I bet it got a, a reaction. You can imagine how grateful those 276 people would have been sitting in their nice new Pontiac G6s that day. You'd react to that, right? So the concept that I'm proposing is that an action, at least a significant one, it demands a reaction. And that concept is relevant to this first topic in our big question series. Just on the next slide here. This concept, it's relevant to this first topic, which is God is loving. So what? God is loving. So what? There are a lot of responses from people when we ask this question who said God's loving. Um, and that's quite true, isn't it? We see that in the Bible. He is loving. But actually, what the Bible shows us is that love is not just an emotion. Right? It's an action. Love's an action. What the Bible shows is that love, it's really the act of love more than it is the feeling of love. And you see that clearly in God's loving action towards us. So where I'm going with all of this is that God's action in love demands a reaction from us. Right? If you accept the proposal I made earlier, then it, it demands a reaction from us. We must ask ourselves, what's our reaction to God's loving action to us? Wherever you are with God, what's your reaction to the fact that God is loving? That's the so what part of this topic, right? This is the so what bit. It's the question for us to wrestle with this morning. What's your reaction to the fact that God is loving? Just hold that question in your minds as we, as we make a start. Uh, but let's keep that there as a bit of a backdrop as we step back. And I'd like you to consider a world without God. Let's just start there. A world without God. So on our... A world without God. So let's consider that. A world that somehow happened um, into existence just because matter slammed itself into each other billions of times and finally did it in a way that life formed. 
Um, that's what I used to believe uh, of how life came to exist. So let's just take a step back and imagine that's uh, actually how that happened. The probability, by the way, of that happening is like me taking um, this container of Lego and shaking it until it forms itself into the shape of an aircraft. There's no aeroplane in there yet. It's virtually impossible, right? That's the probability of life existing by random chance. But let's imagine for a minute that it did happen that way, that we're made up of carbon and oxygen, all those other elements and chemicals that make up the physical body, and that's it. Now, we have a, a spa at home at our place. I mix chemicals to raise and lower the pH. I add chlorine to keep the water clean. No one ever uses the spa, even though they begged me to put one in. That's a sore point, but that's not where I'm going with this. The thing is, as I mix all these chemicals, they've never demonstrated any care for each other. The chlorine has never expressed selfless care for the bromine, vice versa. It's a silly example, but the thing is we know, about, we know something about chemicals, don't we? They don't, they don't do that. They can't do that. So even if a random mix of elements did somehow form conscious life, why would that life form have any care for anyone else? So I want to suggest that it wouldn't, and actually that it couldn't. Maybe it would do its best to avoid pain, to look out for its own survival. Maybe at best it might do that. So if there is no God and we're a collection of elements and chemicals, then surely we should expect a world that's full of self-interest, selfishness, distrust. You know, a world where nothing really matters except me. So in other words, what I'm describing there is a world without love. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, on our next slide, the Apostle Paul explains what love is like. He says this from verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now we see these things, don't we, in our lives and in our world. We see these things, not perfectly, not by a long shot. But we see that love exists. If there was no God, and we just exist through random chance as a mix of chemicals, we wouldn't see and experience love. There would be no love. But there is love amongst us, and we all know it, and it exists, because there is one true God. And actually, as we heard from our reading from the first book of the Bible, from Genesis, this one true God created everything. And if you read the first chapter of Genesis, what you'll find is he creates the world, he creates everything in it, and along the way, he sees that what he created was good. And then he made humankind, he made us in his image, and then he looked at all he had made at that point, and he sees it is very good. See, rather than a loveless, uncaring world of random chance, love exists in this world because there is one true God who is loving in his nature. We're going to explore that a little bit further on. He is loving in his nature, and he made us 
in his image. God's real and loving. And it's only from him that we know love. And in fact, if you keep reading Genesis, as many of you have, you know that God created and things were going very well. Until the people that he created decided they would decide for themselves what good and evil is. They turned from God. In other words, they sinned. And it was from that point on that things got messy. And we know, don't we, that we all do the same thing. We mess it up because we're not God. That's why we see love in our world, but it is far from perfect. Sin messes it up and we see the stuff that comes from sin. The opposite stuff to love, selfishness, anger, distrust, evil. But we also see and experience love because there is a God. And we're created in his image. Our next slide will come up. And I want to say that God is loving as many people in our survey uh, rightly said. He is loving. He is love. His very nature is love. It's like saying water's wet. You know, it's a fundamental property of water. If it's, if it's not wet, it's not water. You can't separate wetness from water. And it's like that with God. He is love. Fundamental to who he is. And the first clue to that actually is from that first reading in Genesis. He created. He didn't have to do that. Now, I wasn't going to spend too much time this morning sort of getting into the doctrine of God, but the Bible tells us there's one God, one essence, if you like, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they exist together in perfect love between them. One God, one essence, three persons. That's where love comes from. If you really think about that, it makes sense because before creation, before us, when there is just God, if there was just one person, there would be nothing to love. If you think of God as a single person who just existed on their own, and there are other faith constructs that look to a God like that, a single person God who created us and our world. But if God is like that, how can there be love? A single person has nothing else to love. Love can't exist in that case. By, nefi- by definition, Love needs more than one, doesn't it? Love exists only in a relationship. And that can't be the case if there's only one person. But we know love exists in our world, and it's because the one true God exists as three persons. Perfect love between each of them. And God didn't need anything outside himself. He doesn't need us. And yet he's still created. The act of creation was an outpouring of love from the persons of God. He formed the world and his image bearers in us, and it was an act of love. See, creation itself shows the nature of God. He is love. And so what is our reaction to that? Now at this point, it's worth addressing a common objection that came up in the interview. How can God be love? If he's a God that judges? And that is a fair question. We've already said that God created and humankind preferred to live their own way without God. That's what the Bible calls sin. It's what messes up God's good creation. And there's a consequence to sin. 
God just can't let his good creation be spoiled. Can't just let those who are made in his image hurt each other deeply. Can't just let those who are made in his image hurt him deeply and just pretend like it never happened. There is judgment for sin. And so how can God be love if he is a God that also judges? Well, the thing is, we tend to think of sin in gradients, don't we? Like mass murder tops the list that deserves justice. But other things, for example, ignoring the way God intends us to use his good gift, good gift of sex, for example, things like that we might tend to think are more trivial. The reality is mass murder is grossly evil, of course it is. But any sinful thing, any sinful thing compared to the perfect eternal God is significant. It does matter. It matters a lot. And sinful things come from sin. Sin is a heart turned from God. And so that can't be ignored. It must be dealt with. If God ignored it, it wouldn't be loving at all. It would just be indifferent and uncaring. Ignoring our offense would not be loving. But God is love. And so because he is, it demands he must do justice. Now we all agree, I imagine we all agree, that justice for wrongdoing is quite correct. It's loving to do justice. It's just that in general, we all agree justice should be done, just not to ourselves. It is loving to do justice. And so there is judgment for sin. And that is a sobering thought, isn't it, for each of us, that one day we will all face judgment before God. But before we let that sit too heavily, although we should feel its weight, there's another aspect of God's love to consider, and it changes everything. See, his love is a love that comes from his character. It doesn't come because we're lovable. It comes from his character. J.I. Packer gives this great example from his short book. It's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. He explains this love like this. He says, picture Charles and Susan walking down a beach hand in hand. University exams have just finished. The pressure of the semester has dissipated in the warm evening breeze. They've kicked off their sandals. The wet sand squishes between their toes. Charles turns to Susan, gazes deeply into her large hazel eyes and says, Susan, I love you. I really do. What does he mean when he says that? Packer says, well, in this day and age, he may mean nothing more than he feels like testosterone on legs and wants to go to bed with her forthwith. But if we assume he has even a modicum of decency, let alone Christian virtue, the least he means is something like this. Susan, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your smile poleaxes me from 50 yards, your sparkling good humor, your beautiful eyes, the scent of your hair, everything about you transfixes me. I love you. And what he most certainly does not mean is something like this. Susan, quite frankly, you have such a bad case of halitosis. And kids, that means bad breath. It would embarrass a herd of unwashed garlic-eating elephants. Your nose is so bulbous, you belong in the cartoons. And your hair is so greasy, it could lubricate an 18-wheeler. Your knees are so disjointed, you make a camel look elegant. 
and your personality makes Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan look like wimps. But I love you. Now we are sinful, rebellious creatures. We are offensive to God. As Packer explains, God loves from his character and what God when God loves us, what he's saying is, morally speaking, you are the people of the halitosis, the bulbous, the bulbous nose, the greasy hair, the disjointed knees, the abominable personality. Your sins have made you disgustingly ugly. But I love you anyway. Not because you're attractive. Because it is my nature to love. Now the thing is, these aren't just words, are they? We know it's true. It's an historical fact that the man Jesus Christ, God the Son, went to the cross and died to face the judgment that we deserve for sin. And God did it so that through faith in Jesus, we could be forgiven for our sin. So we could be brought to a relationship with God for all eternity. Think on that for a moment. That's the depth of love that the Apostle Paul's talking about in our reading from Ephesians chapter 3. That's the love that surpasses all knowledge. That's the love that is immeasurably wide and long and high and deep. That's the love that God drenches us in, fills us up with it, till there is no part of us that's left untouched by his love. This is the love that comes from his nature. So it can never change. And it can never end. See, he must do justice, and he has. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty that must be paid, justice done. But he also brings forgiveness for those who trust he did it for them. The most loving act in human history. See, this is a love that we struggle to comprehend because the love we have is distorted, distorted by sin. Human love often is a love that reacts to something, isn't it? To beauty or intelligence or something of value. It's a love that is often because of the object of the love. The love of God's not like that. His love is a love because that's who he is, not because of what he loves. This is a love that surpasses knowledge. Sinful creatures like us are not lovable. And yet, unbelievably, he loves us just the same. And so as we come to the final part, the final part this morning of what we must reflect on, so what? After we've said all of this, so what? As we said at the beginning, generally, gen, generally, any action demands a reaction. The greatest act of love ever seen in human history was the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. That outpouring of love that soaked this world in the character of its creator. It demands a reaction. And there are only two possible. We can accept God's love. Look to Jesus as Lord and Saviour or not. And actually sitting on the fence is the same as not. And so what is your reaction 
to God's act of love toward you? What's your question? What's your reaction to God's act of love toward you? It's a question that we should each ask, actually, even if we have accepted Jesus as Lord and Saviour. What is our reaction? See, in itself, it's a simple question, is it? Accept it, be drenched in it, or don't. And it is a simple question. But once you do accept God's love for you into your heart, then it's not just an academic exercise to be considered and understood. As Packer says in his book, it's to be absorbed and felt. It's to be pondered and, and meditated on. This love that God has for the unlovable. It's for us to dwell in, to reflect deeply on, perhaps to grasp the wonder of God's love. That we might pray like Ephesians chapter 3, that we would ask him to establish us in his love. We'd ask him to help us grasp how wide and deep is the love of Christ. That through it, we'd be filled with the fullness of God and brought to spiritual maturity. That we might actually truly grasp the love that God, who is love, has for every single one of us. And that we might turn and love him deeply in response. In fact, Let's pray those things right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that out of your glorious riches, you might strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. We pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to you who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to your power that is at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.